0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant, and in this episode, I'm joined by author of The Girl on the Train, Paula Hawkins. Hi, Paula. Hi. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Now, today you've brought with you five objects that shaped and inspired the book. But before we get to the first object, I want to talk first about what a phenomenon this book has become. I mean, it's topped every bestseller list both here and in the US. A Hollywood film is already in production. It's the fastest selling hardback thriller debut of all time. Fans include Stephen King, Reese Witherspoon, me. Did you have (laughs) any idea when you were writing it? that you were going to see such an extraordinary amount of success come your way?
1: No, I didn't. I felt optimistic about it. I felt that it was the book I ought to be writing. The voice felt right for me. It did feel good, but nobody, I think, envisages the sort of success that I've had.
0: So why did you feel this was your voice compared to what you'd written before?
1: The books I'd written before, which fall under the women's fiction label I didn't feel completely comfortable in that sort of romance genre it's not really what I read it was thrillers was was always far more my kind of thing and I hadn't really had a lot of confidence as a fiction writer although that built up over the course of those other books and I think that's how I got to be able to write The Girl on the Train because by that point I developed enough confidence in myself that I could actually go out and do the thing that I really wanted to do. And as soon as I started writing it, I felt, "Oh God, yeah, this, I'm comfortable here. I feel like I can do this properly. like I'm good at this."
0: Has all of this success that you've encountered has that sunk in yet?
1: It's difficult to have a real connection with the success. People tell me all these figures, and this is the number of books you've sold, and it's but there's nothing sort of really tangible <laughs> about it. It's just this thing that's out there, and then you read articles about yourself and you you think, "Oh my God, this is so bizarre. this is Who is that?: Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. Have
0: people come out of the woodwork, though?
1: I have been contacted by people I hadn't spoken to in a very long time. That, yes. to me, is the biggest <laughs> indication of,
0: of if something has become successful. Is yeah. it's suddenly people that you haven't seen or heard from in many yeah. years come <laughs> knocking at the door. <laughs> yes, there has been a fair, a fair amount of that. OK, so often with thrillers, there are plot twists. So I want to reassure anyone who hasn't read or listened to it yet that there will be no spoilers in this episode. And with that in mind, Paula, can you give us... A short synopsis and tell us a little a little bit about the three main characters.
1: Right, well, the synopsis of the book is that the protagonist is Rachel and Rachel is the girl on the train. She's this rather sad and depressed woman who commutes in and out of London every day. She's recently divorced, she's drinking too much and what she likes to do, her sort of form of escapism, is to look look out of the window of the train into these houses that she passes and... She's become a bit obsessed with one of the couples she spotted. She sort of fantasises about them and she's actually gone to the extent of giving them names and sort of making up little stories about them. And then one day she sees something which which really shocks her that involves this couple. And And the following day, the female half of the couple goes missing. And so Rachel now believes that she kind of holds the key to the whole mystery mm-hmm. and she finds herself drawn into it. So that's how we we get into the story. So we have Rachel, divorced, very sad, alcoholic, The woman that she's become obsessed with, whose name is Megan, um, who disappears. And the third voice that we hear from is the woman who is now married to Rachel's ex-husband, who's a woman called Anna, who is living in the house that Rachel used to live in with her husband, who has a baby and is playing happy families there. And this is absolutely torturous for
0: Rachel. I'd like to play an excerpt now, and this is when we're first introduced to Megan, and her character is read by Louise Breely.
2: I can hear the train coming. I know its rhythm by heart. It picks up speed as it accelerates out of Northcote Station, and then, after rattling round the bend, it starts to slow down, from a rattle to a rumble, and then sometimes a screech of brakes as it stops at the signal a couple of hundred yards from the house. My coffee is cold on the table but I'm too deliciously warm and lazy to bother getting up to make myself another cup. Sometimes I don't even watch the trains go past. I just listen. Sitting here in the morning, eyes closed and the hot sun orange on my eyelids, I could be anywhere. I could be in the south of Spain, at the beach. I could be in Italy. The Cinque Terre, all those pretty coloured houses and the trains ferrying the tourists back and forth. I could be back in Hokum, with the screech of gulls in my ears and salt on my tongue and a ghost train passing on the rusted track half a mile away. The train isn't stopping today. It trundles slowly past. I can hear the wheels clacking over the points. I can almost feel it rocking. I can't see the faces of the passengers, and I know they're just commuters heading to Euston to sit behind desks. But I can dream of more exotic journeys, of adventures at the end of the line and beyond.
0: Grips you and grabs you <laughs> because everybody's been on these journeys and I'm sure everybody has, well, I know I certainly have. You look at what you're passing and you invest apparently innocent things with stories. Yes, That's just, just what we do. Mm. Now, it's time for your first object, Paula. Can you please tell me about it and describe what it is?
1: This is a photograph of me with my father, which is actually taken in the south of France. And I think I'm about 20 in the picture. And I chose this because I wanted to talk about my kind of journey into writing. Actually, I really ought to have a picture of me when I was younger. But I don't have any of those because they're all in my parents' house in Africa. So this is about as old as I could get. Please, might have a look. (laughs) Me and Dad in the south of France.
0: So let's go back to the beginning.
1: Right. So, yes, I was born in, in Zimbabwe and I lived there till I was 17. And my father, he's an economist, an academic, but he also wrote for, for the Financial Times. He wrote for Reuters. There were always lots of journalists coming to visit the house. And I just found them all fascinating and brilliant and thought they were wonderful. And this is w- that was when I first started to get that bug that I wanted to write. Um, but when did you actually start writing? I'd always loved writing stories as a child, but I never really thought of that as a, as a career choice. I didn't mm-hmm. think, oh, I'll be a novelist. It just didn't seem like a very practical thing to want to be, and I'm quite a practical person. So journalism was the thing I chose, and that comes from that experience from childhood of being around my dad and his friends. And the journalism I went into was nothing like the journalism I admired. I was a financial journalist. I was writing about tax and pensions and mortgages and that kind of thing. <laughs>
0: But it lit the fire, I think. It lit the spark. And um, So when you said that these journalists, the foreign correspondents, yes. did they have great storytelling They did. They had,
1: they had these, yes, and they always had these extraordinary stories to tell about being kidnapped in places or held at gunpoint by rebels in some part of West Africa, which all sounded absolutely just wonderful to me when I was a child. Obviously, when I, by the time I was an adult, I thought actually maybe not for me, but I was far too much of a wimp to ever do anything like that. That's how I... I started to to think about that I wanted writing to be my career. And was it a big sort.
0: culture shock moving as a teenager from Zimbabwe to live in London?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, I'd I'd been to London on holiday and things, but um, I was very unhappy about it. I had a big group of friends back in Harare who I was very close to, and to be ripped from them at that age is awful. You know, when you're you're you were forced here. Yes, you? I was at against my will. Yes, my mum and dad decided to come over for a couple of years, and they weren't going to leave me behind. So. um yeah, I was I was quite miserable. It took me a while to adjust to London life, to make friends with English people. The first friends I made were all foreigners. <laughs> I just I really struggled. When I went to university and I met lots of lovely English people and then that was fine. But yeah, it took me a while. It did take me a long time. And I was very lonely. And I think a lot of that loneliness is in Rachel. That sort of sense of being isolated and not having anyone to to connect with and the desperation to want to make a connection i can remember that i can remember sitting on the tube and going into college and just and looking at other people and imagining that their lives were so full and exciting and that they were all going to bohemian parties and having a great time and i was just going to go home and watch tv and it was terrible
0: but okay. what's interesting to me is that is that you came to London at the age of 17, is mm. that correct? Yeah. But unlike Alexandra Fuller, you know, a fellow Zimbabwean writer, mm. your, your writing is not infused or filled or the subject matter isn't about no. the paradise lost, as it were.
1: No. And I think I would one day like to write about Africa, but I don't feel ready to do it yet. I think it would be a difficult thing for me to write about. And actually now it's a really long time since I've lived there. So,
0: At what point did you know unequivocally that you wanted to write novels
1: I had always had ideas for novels, and I wrote the beginnings of many, many, many books did, over the course did your of my friends 20s. and other
0: people know that you had these. Uh, some friends drawful.
1: did. I never showed anything to anyone. I had absolutely no confidence in my writing, so it was always something that I aspired to, but I never committed myself properly to it. And it wasn't until I actually was commissioned then to write this woman's fiction novel that I actually got myself writing from the beginning to the end of a book, which is actually quite a
0: difficult thing to do. How did, how did that happen, that, that somebody came to you like a fairy godmother or godfather?
1: <laughs> what happened was, you see, that I'd been approached by an agent... To write a non fiction book, which was a money guide. And that was because she'd read some stuff that I'd written in mm-hmm. the Times and she thought, oh, this woman will be good at it. So I had this agent, and then she had been discussing with an editor an idea for a. They wanted someone to write a, a sort of a chick lit book with the recession as the backdrop. She just said to me, well, do you want to have a crack at it? They need it written really fast. You'd probably be good at it because you understand why the recession is happening, allegedly. <laughs> um, so I said, yeah, great, because it felt like quite a safe way into fiction because they basically sketched out what they wanted. It felt almost like a journalistic commission. So I didn't feel like I was putting my heart and soul on the
0: page. So when did the ping moment happen for you? You just thought, oh, I'm finally doing what I really want to do.
1: Well, the second of those uh, Amy Silver novels sold quite well, and I really enjoyed writing it. And then I was, so at that point, I basically sort of quit journalism.
0: Put the tax office. Yes,
1: I th- this is what I'm going to do. Of course, then subsequent Amy Silver books did not do well, and I found myself fallen on rather hard times. And that's when I decided: well, if you're going to do this, do it properly. Do the thing you want to do. Never mind dabbling around in this sort of this middle ground. Mm-hmm. Write the story you want to write, and that's so how when d- I.
0: How did you support yourself? You said you fell on hard times.
1: Well, I mean, I did make some money. Um, I had to borrow a little bit from my dad at the end there, which was very uncomfortable because you really don't want to be borrowing money from your parents at that age. And did you explain
0: to him that you were borrowing it in order to subsidise you while you were writing this novel?
1: Well, yes, I mean, they knew what I was up to. Um, I think he was rather hoping that I would come to my senses and go back to journalism. (laughs) Back to the dad's work. (laughs) But my, he's, he very sweetly, you know, helped me out when I needed it.
0: So how long did it take to write?
1: Well, actually, it only took a year.
0: And you wrote this completely on spec. There was no... You didn't have a commission from anybody? No,
1: no. I I just wrote it. I mean, I discussed the idea with my agent. She really liked it. She's quite involved in the creative process with me. We talk a lot, and so I'd shown her early chapters and things, and she was really enthusiastic. So I was... I felt good about it. I mean, it was a, it was a very sort of pressurised time because I did feel, and I've said this before, that I, this was almost like the last roll of the dice for me, fiction-wise. Mm-hmm. If this didn't work, I was going to have to do something else. Yeah. It, did, it did feel right from the moment I started putting pen to paper.
0: And was there a bidding war when... There was.
1: I, um, I Can wrote... you just
0: take us through that, how that happened?
1: Well, what happened is I wrote half the book. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I said to my agent, look, I just need to sell it because I need the money now. So we... <laughs> Ideally, you would want to write the whole book before you take it and show it to a publisher. But I, I said, I can't wait another six months because okay. the wolf is at the door. Um, so my agent sent it out to a number of publishers and astonishingly, four of them came in really strongly. There was... Um, over a period of a few weeks, there was sort of all this toing and froing with bids coming in and out, and bids going up, and these amounts of money which just sounded ludicrous to me. Were being, you know, bandied about, and all based on
0: just half the book. They didn't yeah. want the synopsis of what they, the ending they would had,
1: be. I'd sort of sketched out the rest of it, oh, okay. so, I, so they knew, they the knew where was, where, they where, were, where it go. was going. Yes, so yeah, and then it, it was that was incredibly. I'd never experienced anything like that before, so it was it was very exciting. It was wonderful.
0: Wow. OK, let's hear another excerpt from the audiobook. Here's Rachel on the train, taken from Chapter 1.
3: Monday, the 8th of July, 2013. Morning. It's a relief to be back on the 8.04. It's not that I can't wait to get into London to start my week. I don't particularly want to be in London at all. I just want to lean back in the soft, sagging velour seat, feel the warmth of the sunshine streaming through the window, feel the carriage rock back and forth, and back and forth, the comforting rhythm of wheels on tracks. I'd rather be here, looking out at the houses beside the track, than almost anywhere else. There's a faulty signal on this line about halfway through my journey. I assume it must be faulty in any case because it's almost always red. We stop there most days, sometimes just for a few seconds, sometimes for minutes on end. If I sit in carriage D, which I usually do, and the train stops at this signal, which it almost always does, I have a perfect view into my favourite trackside house. Number 15 Number 15 is much like the other houses along this stretch of track. A Victorian semi two storeys high, overlooking a narrow, well-tended garden which runs around twenty feet down towards some fencing, beyond which lie a few metres of no-man's land before you get to the railway track. I know this house by heart. I know every brick. I know the colour of the curtains in the upstairs bedroom, beige with a dark blue print. I know that the paint is peeling off the bathroom window frame and that there are four tiles missing from a section of the roof over on the right-hand side. I know that on warm summer evenings, the occupants of this house, Jason and Jess, sometimes climb out of the large sash window to sit on the makeshift terrace on top of the kitchen extension roof. They are a perfect golden couple.
0: Paula, this leads us very nicely into your second object. Please tell us what it is.
1: I have brought the DVD of Rear Window. Um, The Alfred Hitchcock film, which I love. Mm -hmm. And um, there are obvious parallels with what I've written. But um, yeah, I wanted to talk about Hitchcock a bit because people often ask, you know, what are your influences? What books were you reading? And actually, when I started writing this, it was Hitchcock that sort of popped into my mind because what i wanted to create was this atmosphere of paranoia and self-doubt that he does so well so many of his characters they wonder whether they're going mad they wonder whether they can trust themselves and that was completely what i was wanting to create with rachel was this person who who's so unreliable not just unreliable to other people but unreliable to herself she couldn't trust her own recollections she couldn't trust her judgments so i was thinking about that and obviously the setup when I first had the idea for this um, story, when I was, I was sitting on a district line train and it had broken down again, and um, so you'd sit there for ages looking at someone's kitchen. And yes, as I say, I wondered about, you know, what you would do if you saw an act of violence. So obviously I started thinking of Rear Window. It was, it's a very similar sort of setup. Initially, when I was thinking about writing something, I thought somebody would witness someone with a knife in their hand. Or... <sighs> but then I thought, actually, what was far more powerful and what happens to James Stewart in... in rear window is that he witnesses something that could be completely innocuous. You know, when he reports it, other people are like, that's so what? The guy took a suitcase outside. And similarly, Rachel witnesses something which shocks her, but actually to anybody else would be completely innocuous. It only has meaning to Rachel because of the way she's been behaving and the way she's been watching these people and because of all her own fantasies and problems and all that she's projecting. There are lots of parallels, and um, I wanted to, to keep some of that in the forefront of my mind when I was writing it.
0: How old were you when you first saw Rear Window? I have no idea. Okay. I would
1: probably in
0: my 20s, actually. It wouldn't have been young. So the setting of New York plays a big part in the film, in the same way as London does in The Girl on the Train. So... How important is that, is the London backdrop to you for in, in the writing of it? To me
1: it was very important because I knew those train journeys and because I Because you
0: commuted every yeah, day. Yeah,
1: I'd done well everyone's done lots of those kind of journeys, haven't they? And I mean I think probably less these days because everyone is now staring at their smartphone. But yeah. in the old days everyone was looking out. Of the window, mm. there, I, yeah. There's something just really wonderful about that—that that sort of almost connection that you have with the people, who, and you
0: wonder whether they're looking out at you. And there's train that, you know, that whole, yeah, train voyeurism. It's a yeah. wonderful thing. Um, so, because Rachel gets the same train every day, and is the monotony one of the triggers for her fantasizing, and uh, and she becomes obsessed with the strangers she sees from the train. Mm. So. In Rear Window, Jeff, the James Stewart character, becomes fixated with the strangers he sees out of his window. Are there similarities between his character and Rachel in that they're, I suppose, both looking to find something to fill the void in their mm. lives?
1: Well, Jeff is is just—he's broken his leg, hasn't he? He can't yeah. get out, so he's just really bored. And he's this—he's a journalist, isn't he? He's a photographer, and yeah. he's used to having a very exciting life. And he's just incredibly bored, so he's sitting there. And he's making up stories about all the people who live opposite, but he's kind of doing it in a playful, rather fun way because he has, you know, he actually has quite a nice life. He has Grace Kelly popping around every now and again. And um, so, although he's trapped in his apartment, his boyism is rather playful. Whereas Rachel is, as I said, this incredibly sad and lonely person. And she's looking at these houses, and she's the couple that she's become obsessed by live very close to where she used to live with her husband. So she's projecting all these feelings, she sees them, and she's imagining that's that that's what her and her husband used to be this perfect golden couple. So she is trying to comfort herself, I think, with this fantasy
0: and because it's a thriller, and you know that it's got to have a denouement, yeah. did you know right from the beginning what the end was going to be?
1: I knew in broad strokes, I knew who'd done it ah, um okay. and I didn't but I hadn't figured out all the ins and outs and all the twists and the bits and pieces in and it's it's a really tricky thing to do and I think it's the most difficult part is tying up the mystery in a way that's satisfying, surprising, not completely melodramatic. Mm-hmm. I think so many thrillers promise loads. They have this great um opening and this great premise. And then you get to the end and you're a bit Deflated what? What? by exactly. it. So it was really important to me that I get that
0: right. I not the case with Paula Hawkins, <laughs> the girl on the train. So your next object, I can see, is a can of gin and tonic. Now, I'm assuming this is to represent Rachel's drinking problem.
1: It is. Rachel, Rachel something likes... Something that
0: you did on the way in here.
1: <laughs> I did not, though. It's looking quite tempting to me now. Um, Rachel is a drinker, and um, that's one of the things she drinks, can gin and tonics. And
0: I didn't know actually... you could get
1: that. Well, you know what? The question I was asked most often Mm -hmm. in the United States was, "Is it really true that you can get gin and tonic in a can?" (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't exist in America. (laughs) You're not a boozer, are you? But um, you know, anyone who um, who you know, most of us who take the train will have one. I'm sure at some point or another had a a, has a (laughs) a can of G (laughs) and T. Yes, the character of Rachel actually, um, her alcoholism is kind of central to her, and it's. I had been thinking for a very long time about writing a story about someone who had memory loss that was linked to to alcoholism. I'd actually read a... It was a, an Oliver Sacks story. Oh. I think it's in The Man Who Took His Wife for a Hat... He has a patient who's not an alcoholic. He'd taken PCP and had murdered his girlfriend and had absolutely no recollection of doing anything. Mm -hmm. Completely blanked out. And I just thought, God, that's an extraordinary idea, isn't it? That you could do something really extreme. And then I read about blackouts and I found out that people, you know, have done that drunk, blacked out drunk as well.
0: So one of the reasons she turns to alcohol is because she feels betrayed by her ex-husband, Tom. Mm. And a lot of the character's actions are a reaction to betrayal. And is that a key theme of the book for you?
1: It's complicated with like Rachel and Tom because it's it's difficult to see what happened first. Did he betray her first, or did she start drinking first, and which which thing led to the other thing? And, I, and probably the two things developed together actually. Mm-hmm. But yes, ultimately she feels terribly betrayed, and she's also she's heartbroken that she can't have a baby, and all these things feed in and fuel her alcoholism, which she has allowed to just get completely out of control. And I think I think the thing about Rachel is that she's. There are, I'm sure there are plenty of people who know someone who hasn't got to Rachel's point but who could yeah. if their lives went out, if they lost their job, mm-hmm. you know, lost their relationship. So I think she's quite recognisable. She's not that far away from an awful lot of people one might encounter.
0: So Rachel's drink problem makes her an unreliable narrator and obviously this device has been used in literature and cinema for a long time, you know, very obviously Chief Bromden's schizophrenia in The Cuckoo's Nest, but mm. it it gives huge ambiguity because it it means that you the reader are having to judge Rachel's narrative. And she is misjudging or re-examining her own all the time, which yes. which keeps the whole thing, you there's a constant state of fluidity and
1: like, what is going on here? <laughs> and I think that's something that really draws readers in, particularly in a, in a book like this where you're trying to basically solve a mystery. For mm-hmm. The readers have to feel that they actually have to do a lot of the work because they can't trust this woman. She doesn't know what the hell she's doing. <laughs> so
0: it gives them more of a role. Did she ever, when you were writing her, did she ever her voice overtake and want to dominate over... The other characters over Megan.
1: I think so. I think she does dominate. That was the first voice I had. It was the strongest one. I still I'm closest to Rachel in the sense that I I feel a lot of empathy for Rachel. I feel like I understand Rachel best just because I've lived with her for a longer time. So Does your
0: editor have to take the Rachel stick and beat you down and say (laughs) no? I've got to give Megan an hour. Yes, oh
1: definitely. Um, Megan had to be
0: teased out a bit more. She didn't come so naturally to me. So how did you get in the mindset of a drunk person and how did you capture the full measure of regret that a hangover induces?
1: Well, I think, as I say, you know, I'm not exactly a teetotal. I've had mornings of hideous regret. So I know exactly how that that can feel. I'm Mm -hmm. sure I've had nights where I couldn't remember getting in a taxi. No, I mean, there's that awful, awful self-loathing that comes with a hangover that but that rachel kind of lives with all the time so that's what i just had to think of remember that feeling when you woke in the morning think oh god i cannot believe myself i hate myself so much and then take that and imagine that she lives with that pretty much all the time
0: let's hear a clip of rachel now and this is her waking up in a state and trying to piece together what happened the night before
4: i have to lie down
3: "'If I don't lie down, I'm going to pass out. "'I'm going to fall. I'll clean up later.' "'Upstairs,' I plug in my phone and lie down on the bed. "'I raise my limbs, gently, gingerly, to inspect them. "'There are bruises on my legs, above my knees. "'Standard drink-related stuff. "'The sort of bruises you get from walking into things. "'My upper arms bear more worrying marks.' Dark, oval impressions that look like fingerprints. This is not necessarily sinister. I have had them before. Usually from when I've fallen and someone has helped me up. The crack on my head feels bad. But it could be from something as innocuous as getting into a car. I might have taken a taxi home. I pick up my phone. There are two messages. The first is from Cathy, received just after five, asking where I've got to. She's going to Damien's for the night. She'll see me tomorrow. She hopes I'm not drinking on my own. The second is from Tom. Received at 10.15. I almost drop the phone in fright as I hear his voice. He's shouting.
0: Coming from a family of a long line of alcoholics, I am very used to all the blackout and stuff, and this this confusion that she has Mm. is rung absolutely ding-dong in Mm. all my experience. So can you pass me your next object and please describe it, Paula.
1: This is House at Dusk, which is an Edward Hopper painting,
0: which I particularly
1: like. Well, it just, to me, it's that, again, a voyeuristic impulse, looking in on other people's homes. It's an apartment building there, the lights are on, it's evening. And I'm sure everybody has had that moment at some point where you're, you're walking home on a cold, wintry night and you glance into someone's house and they're all sitting on their sofa watching telly and you just have this <gasps> desperation to just be home now. It, there's yeah. something comforting about it and Very lovely about it. And you just want to be there. And
0: It also underlies your isolation.
1: Yeah, uh, precisely. Because if you are walking down the road and you know that when you get home, there's not going to be anyone there mm-hmm. and it's not going to be warm and lovely, that the twist of loneliness, the, you know, the sharpness that that adds to it... Um is quite extraordinary. And then you catch a glimpse of people safe and warm at home mm-hmm. and you feel good about things. I think, if you're secure in yourself. Or you could feel desperately, desperately sad that you don't have that.
0: So you can see how Rachel reads so she much is, into the strange yeah, she, she is just stra- she's looking the in
1: and she just I mean, we are dealing with extremes of behaviour, but I think it was is possible to imagine someone who is so lonely and so unhappy that she actually decides to, to connect with those people, which is what Rachel does. I mean, she does it in an extraordinary way, but she decides that she can't stand being on the outside any longer and decides that she's sort of going to cross the barrier and go out and make
0: contact with these people who she's seen. And Do you think that we're all culpable of making assumptions about people that we don't know in this way?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think if you commute, take the same train basically every day, you start to see the same faces. Same backyards. So yeah, and you start to feel like you do actually know these people. Yeah. <laughs> you you, yeah. you know, you can kind of, you get the cut of their jib, you know who that person is, and of course that's ridiculous, you don't know anything about them, but I think it's really tempting to start constructing personalities just on the basis of familiarity
0: have you ever had that thing where you see somebody and they look like one thing that you make an assumption about them and they speak on their mobile phone and you go oh my god it's completely wrong as they broadcast <laughs> their entire life story of tax evasion to the carriage absolutely
1: Definitely. so
0: hopper's work has often been described as cinematic so how excited are you to see the girl on the train now being made into a movie
1: I am really excited. It's going to be extraordinary. I kind of, I sort of can't quite imagine it. Um, so I mean, It was
0: are... published on the 15th of January, sorry yes. to, to interrupt. How soon was it? You said that it it became a bestseller within the second week of it yes. being on the shelves. Was the movie deal done before it had even come out? It
1: was, actually. Um, my agents had given a proof copy to um, some agents in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and it was snapped up fairly quickly, actually. You're living the dream. Um I know it was, you but are. well, when it happened, I actually quite a lot of books get optioned and nothing ever happens. Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Oh, right," you know. Yeah. I it was exciting, but I wasn't going to get too overexcited about the whole thing. But actually, then it's moved far more quickly than I'd thought, presumably because it has done so well, particularly in the states. So now there a director has been attached, um, Tate Taylor, and they've they've cast all the female characters. I'm still waiting to hear about the men and. In theory, they're no, supposed to little. start <laughs> start shooting in November.
0: So the latest casting news for the Girl on the Train says that Emily Blunt will stars Rachel, yes. Rebecca Ferguson uh, will play Anna, and Hayley Bennett will play Megan. Yes. How involved will you be in all of this?
1: I won't be involved in it. You've at not all? written the screenplay. No, I actually have finally got my hands on a screenplay, but I haven't read it yet. I've never written for film before. I wouldn't know, really know where to start. I think adapting your own work is probably really quite tricky, mm-hmm. and I thought it was best to, to leave it to
0: someone else. Gosh, that's very um, mature and grown up of you to say that. <laughs> no, but I think you're. I think you're right. You're safeguarded against.
1: In a way, it's quite. It's quite own... a sort of safe yeah. position to take, isn't yeah, because it? because Your book
0: remains your book. My book is my book. No matter what I, they do, film
1: is not really what I do. Although I, I'd love at some point to, to to try my hand at it, but I don't think this is the moment. I've got another, I'm trying to write another novel anyway, so.
0: OK. We've heard from Rachel and Megan. Before we hear a clip of Anna, I wanted to ask you about the audiobook. Now, were you involved in the casting of that? And did you know that it needed these different readers? I wasn't involved in the
1: casting, no. Um, but I, people absolutely love the audiobook the feedback that I've had from people on Twitter and they mm-hmm. just think that those, those three voices work fantastically.
0: Um, I've had really brilliant um, feedback about that. So, so much better than having one narrator that takes you throughout imitating the voices. Well, I, th- those, th- I think it's really,
1: it really helps sort of get the characters formed in people's minds if you have these different voices. It also immediately situates the reader, OK, this is where we are now, if mm-hmm. you, you're switching from one voice to another. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So here's the first time we meet Anna, who has usurped Rachel and it's read by India Fisher.
5: Evie wakes just before six. I get out of bed, slip into the nursery and pick her up. I feed her and take her back to bed with me. When I wake again, Tom's not at my side, but I can hear his footfalls on the stairs. He's singing low and tuneless, Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. I hadn't even thought about it earlier. I'd completely forgotten I didn't think of anything but fetching my little girl and getting back to bed. Now I'm giggling before I'm even properly awake. I open my eyes and Evie's smiling too. And when I look up, Tom's standing at the foot of the bed holding a tray. He's wearing my all Keely apron and nothing else. Breakfast in bed, birthday girl, he says. He places the tray at the end of the bed and scoots round to kiss me. I open my presents I have a pretty silver bracelet with onyx inlay from Evie and a black silk teddy and matching knickers from Tom and I can't stop smiling. He climbs back into bed and we lie with Evie between us. She has her fingers curled tightly around his forefinger and I have hold of her perfect pink foot and I feel as though fireworks are going off in my chest. It's impossible, this much love. A while later, when Evie gets bored of lying there, I get her up and we go downstairs and leave Tom to snooze. He deserves it. I pot around, tidying up a bit. I drink my coffee outside on the patio, watching the half-empty trains rattle past, and think about lunch. It's hot, too hot for a roast, but I'll do one anyway, because Tom loves roast beef, and we can have ice cream afterwards to cool us down. I just need to pop out to get that Merlot he likes, so I get Evie ready, strap her in the buggy, and we stroll down to the shops. Everyone told me I was insane to agree to move into Tom's house, but then everyone thought I was insane to get involved with a married man, let alone a married man whose wife was highly unstable, and I've proved them wrong on that one. No matter how much trouble she causes, Tom and Evie are worth it. But they were right about the house, On days like today, with the sun shining, when you walk down our little street, tree-lined and tidy, not quite a cul-de-sac, but with the same sense of community, it could be perfect. Its pavements are busy with mothers, just like me, with dogs on leads and toddlers on scooters. It could be ideal. It could be, if you weren't able to hear the screeching brakes of the trains. It could be so long as you didn't turn around and look back down towards number 15.
0: India Fisher, reading the character of Anna. Paula, time for your final object.
1: Right. Well, I have brought the book of Less of Notes, which is actually a representation of the website, um, Less of Notes, mm-hmm. from which um, I took a letter which is used in the book, and it's a letter from Henry Miller to Anna Nin, shortly after they began their affair and it was just, I just took a line f- from it, which is, don't expect me to be sane anymore, which is a line that um, that Tom uses with Anna and actually has used on more than one occasion before, apparently. Um, but it's this extraordinary letter, and I, w- I was sort of thinking about obsessive love. And I, can I read a bit of this? Yes. Yeah. So he he starts out, Henry Miller, don't expect me to be sane anymore. Don't let's be sensible. It was a marriage at Vienne, You can't dispute it. I came away with pieces of you sticking to me. I am walking about, swimming in an ocean of your blood, your Andalusian blood, distilled and poisonous. And he goes on, Here I am back and still smouldering with passion like wine smoking. Not a passion any longer for flesh, but a complete hunger for you, a devouring hunger. And I was, so there's, there's this extraordinary lesson. I was just thinking, my God, what, what must it be like to receive something like that? Yeah, what would it do insanity. to you? You know, yeah. and... So there are two things about this, I suppose. Is The one thing is that that the fact that Tom uses this kind of sheds a little bit of light on what Tom is like. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of it, it's about Anna and about how she feels. She never feels any guilt about the fact that she's having this affair and that she's stolen somebody else's husband. And part of it is because he has, you know, expressed all these extraordinary feelings for her. And I, you can imagine how that makes you feel. It makes you feel powerful and delirious. But then, of course, she also believes that Tom's wife is an utter, and so she's she's rescuing him from his terrible marriage. So, yes, there are lots of twisted twisted relationships in it.
0: I mean, what, what you capture so fantastically is the power that the mistress feels over mm. the wife mm. who's been, rather than feeling any compassion towards her, it's th- that empowerment of thinking, well... Yeah. It's that feeling of,
1: you know, he, yeah, he just, he doesn't want to do the wrong thing, but he can't resist me. I am that amazing.
0: Yes. (laughs) So it is a kind of insanity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think people in love do delude themselves, don't they? Terribly. And it makes people blind to the faults of others, as it makes Rachel blind to Tom's faults, to the things, you know, he has done wrong. She doesn't see any of it. Part of that is obviously her her drink problem, but part of it is that she just loves him ridiculously and blindly.
0: So you've got Henry Miller, Edward Hopper, two great Mm -hmm. American icons alongside Alfred Hitchcock who's obviously British, but have you always been interested in American art and culture and are you surprised at how well the book is done in the US?
1: Yeah, I have been very surprised by how well the book is done in the US because to me it felt very English. Well, obviously the setting is English, but Mm I that whole thing of shuttling back and forth on the train drinking felt very English. Um, <laughs> but there are obviously plenty of things that people can still identify with. That voyeur- that commuting, that voyeuristic impulse, the character of Rachel. All of those things seem to have, have struck a chord and they seem to translate rather well, which is, which is fantastic.
0: Shagging is timeless. <laughs> Paula. Exactly. this brings us to the end of this episode of The Penguin Podcast and thank you very, very much indeed for coming in and sharing all your stories.
1: Thank you very much.
5: Penguin Random House Audio present the thriller In a Dark, Dark Wood by Ruth Ware. Nora hasn't seen Claire for 10 years. Now, completely out of the blue, an invitation to Claire's Hindu arrives. An isolated house, a dark, snowy wood, everyone's worst nightmare, and the perfect ingredients for a tense and terrifying listen.
4: I am running. I am running through moonlit woods with branches tearing at my clothes and my feet catching in the snow-bowed bracken. Brambles slash at my hands. My breath tears in my throat. It hurts. Everything hurts. But this is what I do. I run. I can do this. Always when I run, there's a mantra inside my head. The time I want to get or the frustrations I'm pounding away against the tarmac. But this time, one word, one thought pounds inside me. James. 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 I must get there. I must get to the road before. And then there it is a black snake of tarmac in the moonlight, and I can hear the roar of an engine coming, and the white lines shine so bright they hurt my eyes, the black tree trunks like slashes against the light. Am I too late? I force myself down the last thirty meters, tripping over fallen logs, my heart like a drum in my breast. James. And I'm too late. The car is too close. I can't stop it. I fling myself onto the tarmac, my arms outstretched. Stop! In a Dark,
5: Dark Wood by Ruth Ware. Available now on iTunes and Audible.